Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Carrie Plitt here with my co-host Octavia Bright. Hi, Octavia. Hi, Carrie. Having fun today? Oh, yeah. Uh, this <laughs> month, you'll be hearing a recording of our very first live show with Faber Social at The Social in London earlier this month. You will indeed. And it was a brilliant night. We had loads of fun. Um, the theme was new voices, so we featured a whole range of amazing writers, including the debut performances from the Faber New Poets, Joanna Cannon, Evie Wilde, and Ned Bowman, um, and all of it in front of a sold-out crowd. It was solid, it was packed, and it was buzzing. First up were some very new voices, Crispin Best, Sam Buckenwatts, Rachel Curzon, collectively known as the Faber New Poets. Um, it was also their first public appearance, as Octavia said, uh, and they read from selections of their work. Now, I have to say, I was a little apprehensive about this. Um, whenever I hear poetry reading, I think, oh, God, is this going to be terrible? But it was so great. It was so funny, um, really thoughtful, and they were all amazing readers. So this is a real treat to be able to play this on the radio. Hello. Um, thank you so much, Martha and Becky, who uh, just explained the whole situation to us. And it's pretty daunting, and I didn't realize. Um, but yeah, so, I, uh, so you got me at a good time in my life where I'm quite stressed out. Um, but yeah, so I'm actually going to read the, the, the submissions that we sent for the pamphlet were about 18 months ago or 12, 14 months ago. So I'm going to read some newer poems. Um, Basically, I've recently been writing the various poems, and they all have the same title. Um, but this one is called, so this one is called, But Do Dolphins Want to Swim With Me? Um, the cooking apples have long gone brown on the countertop. Nights arrive like iguanas in suits, and with them the long dream on a beach where a banner notification blocks the sunset. These poems are the kiddie pools I inflate while I'm alive. Um, so the next poem I'm going to read is called, But Do Dolphins Want to Swim With Me? Um, you don't have to believe in doors, or that technically all worms are earthworms. You don't have to believe in a massage so good that it will make you glad you have a body, or that the next time you won't be terrified of death, you'll be dead. That of all the available beards, still sometimes people choose the goatee. You don't, even, you don't even have to believe that anteaters exist, but let's at least agree that although cottage pie is a strange name, shepherds is the saddest pie, because look, he is eating his friends. Um, uh, okay. It's sad. Why is everyone laughing? Um... Okay, the next one is called, um, But Do Dolphins Want to Swim With Me? <laughs> Some people are even glad just to pee on a bush or a root. I have seen them do it and then smile. No more beautiful lines in poetry. The dog only brings the stick back because he thinks you enjoy throwing it. At the end of this poem, three months will pass. Um, okay, and I'm going to finish with one that is in the, in the pamphlet, which is out. Uh, April 7th, I think. Um, well yes. Um, something stayed in there. Um, okay, so this one's called um, My God. In, maybe in Zizek's voice, I don't know. Um, 
<laughs> my God. Uh, you have no idea of the distances I would travel just to disappoint you. I will even wear a fashionable shoe. My God, just watch me. Another, I ask. Go ahead, you say. And another? No, that's too many shoes. <laughs> we shout. We throw bits of the forest at the forest. We walk. The so-called trees and the sky. A so-called kite and a cloud. My God. The so-called sky, but first the trees. If you hold my hand, hold my hand. It could even rain. A walk in the wet leaves, my so-called shoe comes off in the mud. My God, these yellow socks, I love them. All right, that's it for me, and enjoy the rest of the night. Thank you so much for coming. The days go just like that. If you emerge from the glove of woods, the trail's patchiness like jaundiced spliff paper, and the dry powder bloom of a fire extinguisher let off by kids last night, blinking, feeling skew-if, confused, to find this, a medieval reenactment in medias res, then you have seen it exactly as it should be seen, exposed but distant, so that the quirks, the radiant tinkle, the gathers of enthusiasts, the rhubarb rhubarbs, the unintelligible frills, the coarseness of sound their makeshift dress makes, like brown paper crumpling as it's being burnt, are so correct as if history were a thing to be administered amidst the afternoon, and the hold all blue seems about to decompress until all we have left is a far-off clobber of wood, and the days go just like that. Um, this poem is from a sequence of prose poems that are essentially made-up dreams. Um, I'm quite interested in the idea that dream-telling is an act of flirtation, whereby it's as much about what you disclose it as it is about what you withhold. But that makes the poems sound more racy than they are, actually. <laughs> uh, it's um, this one's quite sad. It's called The Bridge. I dreamt that we made an unbreakable vow with the bridge and that we were naive and not au fait with the extent of its vice-like structure. Dreams rarely allow for this kind of foresight, and now I come to think of it, weren't the contractors a little rushed? Does that side of the bridge not bow a little while the other dominates? And I've since broken that vow over so many mornings when the weather was stupid and it felt like the city was gearing up for a giant sneeze. And in crossing the bridge, I didn't own up to feeling uncertain. I carried on cycling, letting the feeling lie latent, like the glycerin moss that looks painted onto the bottom of the bridge supports each time the waves peel back, assuming the feeling would recede like a siren into the distance. And we were both guilty of assuming the bridge and its two views were unassailable and broader than reality, neither one of us attempting to hold that view in our minds so that we could refer back to it later. I regret the many potholes in the road, each with a downwards view of the water, and how I freewheeled on through an air moody with bugs, assuming always that you'd be there to meet me on the other side, a point at which we can take in both views, not like here, amidst the ruins of our vow, by the riverbank with the snarky remains of a fire, its shadow insisting on the walls, on the walls, and the sight of the wave's urge, like a recurring siren, to overwrite itself just once more, once more again. And I'll finish with this short poem, which is quite self-explanatory. Happens again. 
It was when Basil said, my deja vu gets so bad I sometimes throw up, that the room got brighter. The TV went off with a blip. I think I said, was the TV just on a second ago? The static fretted for some time before or after. We were two figures in the room. There was a reasonable amount of glare. That's a snag in your brain or your gut, not elsewhere. The walls begin slotting into the floors as usual. The smell of sick is unforgettable. Thank you very much. I would like to show you my halo. It is robust and glorious. One spring day, I put it on like this, wanting to distinguish myself. I felt it brace itself. I felt the fierce band, fiercer, clutch about my head, so attentive, like a migraine. I will be compressed to some dense absolute, I celebrated. And other halos arrived because I was so very good. I wore one in a band about my throat. Every time I breathed, it gave me this word, stainless. I inhaled, exhaled, loving myself. Soon, my wrists earned little halos of their own, very shiny. They always reminded me not to point or finger breakables or hold things in imprudent ways. I moved them in sunlight the way a confident man might shoot his cuffs and flexed myself slightly inside all these golden hoops. Everybody looked at me and none of them had halos. I will dress always in white, I said very solemnly. Now I would like to show you all of this. I am so full of halo, it is quite an accomplishment. Tomorrow I will add another, another around my curious eyes, my careless mouth. That was a poem, by the way, not just some really egocentric introduction. <laughs> As I'm getting older, I think, um, I'm coming to the realization that I'm one of these people who get slightly fretful if things go right, and I always wonder when they're going to go wrong. And I think this poem um, is in that vein. It's called Threats. I have been granted such territories. I have made my home there carefully, made them belong to me. It is hard to believe. I thought I would always wander a member of nothing, now I line up my shoes in the same place each evening. And I can tell no one that I lie awake, dangerous with terror, breathing out, breathing in, imagining my world laid out exactly in some gray official room as capable women gather round it with perfectly straight lines down the backs of their calves, trailing the ends of their lovely hair across each sacred place of it. Oh, they push their own dreams back and forth so confidently over my hard-won territories with their long sticks. I'm going to finish with um, a poem. 
I suppose about the end of things, although things don't really end cleanly, do they? And I think what's tough can be those um, little fragments, significant fragments of stuff you keep bumping up against when you're trying to move on. And that's especially hard when it's really cold outside. <laughs> this is called Worst Winter, in which snow makes a boy of you and leaves me cold in which a white walk stretches and then shrinks to her, laughing in the picture from behind her wet hair, in which you help her build an igloo and I reread the list we made. Period, Victorian, two to three bed. Thank you. Those were the Faber New Poets, the fabulous Faber New Poets, I should say. Um, our next new voice was debut author Joanna Cannon. Joanna graduated from the Leicester Medical School and worked as a hospital doctor before specialising in psychiatry. She lives in the Peak District with her family and her dog. And her first no novel, The Trouble with Goats and Sheep, was published on the 28th of January and has already spent a few weeks on the Sunday Times bestseller list. And very appropriately for our theme, Joanna was named one of the Observer's eight new faces of fiction for 2016 earlier this month. So we're really thrilled that she was able to join us. I've written a book called The Trouble with Goats and Sheep, as Harry said. Um, it's a book which is set in England in the summer of 1976. And it's about two little girls who live on a very ordinary housing estate. And they wake up one morning to find out that one of their neighbours has mysteriously disappeared. And they have no idea where this woman has gone. And all the residents on the avenue blame each other for this woman disappearing. And... They also blame the heat, because British people like to blame the weather for things. Um, but most of all, they blame the man who lives at number 11. And the reason they blame the man who lives at number 11 is because he's a little bit different to everybody else. He keeps himself to himself. He doesn't mix. He's a bit unusual. And I think most people know somebody like the man at number 11, um, somebody that the community doesn't really include. Um, but the problem is, all the people on the avenue are in their own way a little bit like that. They're just very good at hiding it. And I work, when I'm not writing about goats and sheep, I work as a doctor, as Carrie said, in psychiatry. And I meet a lot of people who live on the periphery of life, um, who don't get included in, who don't know quite how to join in with everybody else. And it occurred to me one day when I listened to the conversations at the nurse's station and in the doctor's office, who actually watches the watchman? Because we're all a little bit like that. We're all not fitting in, we're just very good at hiding it and very good at presenting different versions of ourselves to the world in order to be accepted. So I wanted to write a story that gives a voice to these people who live at the edge of society and to hear what they've got to say. And in order to do that, I had to um, make the narrator somebody who didn't have an agenda because everybody who lives on this avenue has an agenda. They're all pretending to be something they're not. So my narrator had to be somebody who didn't see the world with a filter and so I thought the best option for that is a child. So my narrator is called Grace, and she's 10 years old, and she has a best friend called Tilly. And they decide to spend the long, hot summer of 1976 trying to find out what has happened to their missing neighbour. So the first bit I'm going to read for you, I'll read two short pieces. The first bit is um, how Grace first met Tilly. 
I have known Tilly Albert for a fifth of my life. She arrived two summers ago in the back of a large white van and they unloaded her along with a sideboard and three easy chairs. I watched from Mrs. Morton's kitchen whilst I ate a cheese scone and listened to a weather forecast for the Norfolk Broads. We didn't live on the Norfolk Broads, but Mrs. Morton had been there on holiday and she liked to keep in touch. Mrs. Morton was sitting with me. Would you just sit with Grace while I have a little lie down, my mother would say. Although Mrs. Morton didn't sit very much at all. She dusted and baked and looked through windows instead. My mother spent most of 1974 having a little lie down, and so I sat with Mrs. Morton quite a lot. I stared at the white van. Who's that then, I said, through a mouthful of scone. Mrs. Morton pressed on the lace curtain, which hung halfway down the window on a piece of wire. It dipped in the middle, exhausted from all the pressing. That'll be the new lot, she said. Who are the new lot? I don't know. She dipped the lace down a little further. But I don't see a man, do you? I peered over the lace. There were two men, but they wore overalls and were busy. The girl who had appeared from the back of the van continued to stand on the pavement. She was small and round and very pale, like a giant white pebble, and was buttoned into a raincoat right up to her neck, even though we hadn't had rain for three weeks. She pulled a face as though she were about to cry, and then she leant forward and was sick all over her shoes. Disgusting, I said, and took another scone. <laughs> By four o'clock, she was next to me at the kitchen table. I'd fetched her over because she'd sat on the wall outside her house, looking as though she'd been misplaced. Mrs. Morton got the dandelion and burdock out and a new packet of penguins. I didn't know then that Tilly didn't like eating in front of people, and she held onto the bar of chocolate until it leaked between her fingers. Mrs. Morton spat on a tissue and wiped Tilly's hands, even though there was a tap three feet away. Tilly bit her lip and looked out of the window. Who are you looking for, I said. My mother. Tilly turned back and stared at Mrs. Morton, who was spitting again. I just want to check she's not watching. You're not looking for your father, said Mrs. Morton, who was nothing if not an opportunist. I wouldn't know where to look. Tilly wiped her hands very discreetly on her skirt. I think he lives in Bristol. Bristol? Mrs. Morton put the tissue back into her cardigan sleeve. I have a cousin who lives in Bristol. Actually, I think it might be Bournemouth, said Tilly. Oh, Mrs. Morton frowned. I don't know anyone who lives there. No, Tilly said. Neither do I. So this is Grace and Tilly, who are, are kind of little detectives on the avenue, um, who go looking for Mrs. Creasy, the missing neighbour. Um, so it's the kind of a whodunit through goats and sheep, um, what happened to this woman. But also there's a darker side, a, a side about belonging and communities and what it means to fit in. And the reason I set it during the drought was because all these very well-respected, very normal-appearing um, neighbours needed a catalyst to help them break down so that we can actually see what the kind of people they really are um, and what better catalyst than heat. And so I decided to set it during the drought. 
Um, so as the environment is breaking down with the heat, so is the neighbours' ability to hold things together. So the, the second reading I'm going to do is all about Grace and Tilly sitting on a wall outside Grace's house, discussing the heat and the weather, and what might have happened to Mrs Creasy. So Mrs Creasy was still missing on Tuesday, and she was even more missing on Wednesday when she'd arranged to sell tickets for the British Legion. By Thursday, her name was being passed over garden fences and threaded along the queue at shop counters. What about Margaret Creasy then, someone would say, and it was like firing a starting pistol. My father spent his time stored away in an office on the other side of town and always had to have the day explained to him when he got home. Yet each evening, my mother still asked my father if he had heard any news about Mrs. Creasy. And each evening, he would sigh from the bottom of his lungs, shake his head, and go and sit with a bottle of pale ale and Kenneth Kendall. On Saturday morning, Tilly and I sat on the wall outside my house and swung our legs like pendulums against the bricks. We stared over at the Creasy's house. The front door was ajar, and all the windows were open as if to make it easier for Mrs. Creasy to find her way back inside. Mr. Creasy was in his garage, pulling boxes from towers of cardboard and examining their contents one by one. Do you think he murdered her, said Tilly. I expect so, I said. I paused for a moment before I allowed the latest bulletin to be released. She disappeared without taking any shoes. Tilly's eyes bulged like a haddock. How do you know that? The woman at the post office told my mother. Your mother doesn't like the woman at the post office. She does now, I said. <laughs> Mr. Creasy began on another box. With each one, he was becoming more chaotic, scattering the contents at his feet and whispering an uncertain dialogue to himself. He doesn't look like a murderer, said Tilly. What does a murderer look like? They usually have moustaches, she said, and are much fatter. The smell of hot tarmac pinched at my nose, and I shifted my legs against the warmth of the bricks. There was nowhere to escape the heat. It was there every day when we awoke, persistent and unbroken, and hanging in the air like an unfinished argument. It leaked people's days onto pavements and patios, and no longer able to contain ourselves within brick and cement, we melted into the outside, bringing our lives along with us. Meals, conversations, discussions were all woken and untethered and allowed outdoors. Even the avenue had changed. Giant fissures opened on yellowed lawns and paths felt soft and unsteady. Things which had seemed solid and reliable were now pliant and uncertain. Nothing felt sure anymore. The bonds which held things together were destroyed by the temperature. This is what my father said. But it felt more sinister than that. It felt as though the whole avenue was shifting and stretching and trying to escape itself. A fat housefly danced a figure of eight around Tilly's face. My mum says Mrs. Creasy disappeared because of the heat. She brushed the fly away with the back of her hand. 
My mum says the heat makes people do strange things. I watched Mr. Creasy. He had run out of boxes and was crouched on the floor of his garage, still and silent and surrounded by debris from the past. I think it probably does, I said. My mum says it needs to rain. I think she's probably right. I looked at the sky, which sat like an ocean above our heads. It wouldn't rain for another 56 days. Thank you very much. That was Joanna Cannon reading from her novel, The Trouble with Goats and Sheep. So in the second half of the Faber Social Program, we did something a little different. We interviewed two award-winning novelists, Evie Wilde and Ned Bowman, about their work, their authorial voice, and what it was like to be a new voice in the literary world, slightly shoehorning the theme in there. But it worked, I think. So um, Octavia, do you want to introduce Evie? Absolutely. Evie was born in London and raised in Australia and South London. Um, and she's the author of the novel After the Fire, A Still Small Voice, which won the John Llewellyn Rees Prize and a Betty Trask Award. In 2013, she was included on Granta Magazine's Once a Decade Best of Young British Novelist list. Her second novel, All the Birds Singing, published in 2013, won the Miles Franklin Award, the Encore Award, and the Jerwood Fiction Uncovered Prize. So this lady is dripping in awards. Um, and her latest book is Everything is Teeth, an autobiographical graphic novel illustrated by Joe Sumner about her childhood obsession with sharks. And I will introduce Ned Bowman, who it turns out is also dripping with awards. Not to make it a competition between our two intros, but maybe it is. <laughs> Ned Bowman was born in 1985 in London. His debut novel, Boxer Beetle, was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award and the Desmond Elliott Prize and won the Writers Guild Award for Best Fiction and the Goldberg Prize for Outstanding Debut Fiction. His second novel, The Teleportation Accident, was longlisted for the Man Booker Prize and won the Encore Award and a Somerset Mom Award. His latest novel is Glow, a conspiracy thriller set in South London involving foxes, a new wonder drug, and a mining conglomerate. Um, and it's, it's very thrilling. He has been chosen by The Culture Show as one of the 12 best new British novelists and was also on the Granta list of the best young British novelists with Evie. Loads of bests. So here they are. Um, can we start by just talking about what it was like to be a new voice when you published your novel? Um, how did you feel? How were you treated? What was the experience like? Um, I was treated very well. Um, <laughs> I, I remember it being like one of those things you kind of imagine it being this moment in your life where you go, oh my God, this is amazing. But actually publishing is a long story and it, um, it takes around about a year if you're lucky from selling the book to it coming out. So what I mainly remember is all of my family ringing up and being like, oh, is it going to be out for Christmas? So, you know, is, it must be out, you know, in the next three weeks. And it's just sort of irritating. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, there's a lot of irritation, not at, not at anyone in publishing, but um, at my family. <laughs> <laughs> that helps, anyway. <laughs> Ned, did you have the same experience? Yeah, that year gap is pretty annoying. Um, my main experience of it was... Um, my 
first novel came out when I was 25, which is pretty young, but I got so sick of people talking about, not talking about how young it was, but asking me like, what it, is it like to be so young and have a novel out as if I was gonna say, I can give you a systematic answer to that because in my previous life in Victorian times, <laughs> when I published my first novel in my 60s, it was really different. So let me take you through the pros and cons. And it, like, it, it was, yeah, it was good publishing it so soon, but that was really boring. And I was so relieved when, I don't know how to pronounce her name, but Taya Obrett, is it? Yeah. The Tiger's the Wife. The Tiger's Wife published hers when she was 24 and <laughs> started to draw the fire away from me in terms of questions about being young. It's really embarrassing because our next question was about <laughs> being young, but it was maybe it, we should skip, skip it, that one. Skip it. Um, we will tell totally, you, I mean, it's not, not very important, not very interesting. Um, so, um, Evie, this one's for you, uh, uh, not for Ned, but you can chip in later. Um, you've talked a lot uh, in interviews about the challenges of being a woman author um, or how it feels to be a, a female writing. Um, and I wondered, do you, think that, do you think that you had a harder time convincing people to listen to what you had to say? Or do you think your gender played into it at all or, or not? Well, again, a little bit like the age thing. It's like, I don't know what it's like to publish as a man, but... Um, um, I don't know, like, it's the same as any other industry. It's, you know, it's not, uh, it's not easy, but then it's not been bad. It's, it's not been, you know, publishing is uh, quite a female-heavy industry. Um, I've had the, I've had the odd, I mean, if you read um, the comments on Guardian Online, then you'll just go and jump off a bridge. But, you know, I've had the odd, like, Come on, darling, stop bitching about blah. Um, but um, I don't know. I've, I've found it the same as uh, being a woman working in PC World, being a woman working in an art gallery. It's the same kind of like, um, yes, love, but you write romance, kind of. That, that's the assumption, is that, um, is that there's, there's women's writing for women to read and men's writing for men to read, as we all know. Um, and, but I guess I know that more from working in a bookshop that, you know, people would pick up MJ Highland, for instance, and go, oh, you know, and toddle off with them and then bring, bring it back and go, I didn't realise it was Maria, I thought it was Michael. Um, <laughs> so there's, there's that. <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it, again, it's, it's just, it's the same as everything else. Did you ever think about publishing under a pseudonym? Um, I did think about it, but I never kind of, once the wheels are in motion, it, it kind of happens so uh, sneakily, I suppose, because you get the, the bookseller announcement and then it's announced and you just feel like, nah, <laughs> I didn't even think about that. You know, you're kind of like um, on to the next thing. But, and I think there's a certain, um, you know, it's not something I want to hide and I, I had it in mind that I would say yes to every event I was asked to do. So We're very grateful. <laughs> Sorry, that sounds Ned really actually awesome. also said that <laughs> earlier. He was like, I say yes to everything. <laughs> I was like, thanks. I don't anymore. I don't anymore. But, um, 
but with the first one, you just feel like you've got to, um, you know, you've got one go at your first book, and um, and you kind of want to do anything you can because um, you never know who's going to see it and enjoy it or see it and hate it. Um, and yeah, so I, I don't know. It's it's the same, same, same. And Ned, do you think you had an easier ride of it being a dude or, or not at all? Is some years back there. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was aware that when my first book came out as a straight, white, young male who went to public school in Oxbridge, if anyone said after my book came out, we've heard enough from you people, all I could say was, yeah. <laughs> that is 100% the case. Um, but my book is still available for anyone. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I yeah, I genuinely don't know. But look, before my, I kind of feel the same way in that before my first book came out, I because my first book had sort of gay themes and it felt like the sort of book that a gay writer might write, I thought, okay, great, I'm going to present myself as a sort of pansexual Bowie type human nebula <laughs> and leave it ambiguous. But then same thing, the bookseller interview comes out and their bookseller interviews you way before anyone else interviews you. So you're not really prepared. And then it's done and it's on the internet and you're sort of nailed down and it's too late to <laughs> create like a fluid semi-fictional identity. Um, so I'm stuck with who I am. But you'd, I mean, you, uh, well, you'd have to, I guess, either ask my agent and my editor or do some kind of empirical study about my agent and my editor about whether um, men have an unfair advantage. And that may very well be the case, but I'm probably the worst person to um, say whether or not because I'm in the middle of the fisheye lens, as it were. So I don't know. That was very carefully phrased. <laughs> um, do, do you ever feel pigeonholed in any way? Do you feel like... Me? You, yes. Um, no, I mean, I think it's... So my third book was very consciously more of like a pacey thriller than my first two. And it is really difficult to go from writing like... Uh, I don't want to say like deep, but like sort of thinky literary novels to writing something a bit breezier as your third book because people do inevitably judge it by the standards that you were, I mean, you can't complain because you, you publish a couple of books and you say, these are the standards by which I want to be judged. And then you publish another book and people continue to judge you by those standards. So it's your own fault, but I did find it my third book was meant to be like a fun thriller and a lot of people complained the villains are too villainy and the heroes are too heroic and it doesn't feel like real life and it was said it wasn't meant to feel like real life so in that respect yeah a little bit and I also feel like um, uh, I think my books are funny <laughs> <laughs> I strongly feel that my books are quite funny. 
And I do think um, often if people laugh in the first 10 pages, they stop looking for anything else. I, uh, I think being funny in a way, it's like a, you know, Batman throwing down like a smoke pellet. It clouds the reader for thinking about it in a more serious way sometimes, which I don't think should be the case. I mean, it may be that my books are merely funny and uh, really the humor is concealing the <laughs> deep hollowness behind the smoke pellet. <laughs> but I think if you, it, I do feel sometimes if you write a book that is A, a thriller, B, trying to be funny, it's really hard to persuade people to also regard it as like trying to have some ideas. But then again, there are, I can't complain about being pigeonholed. I mean, oh my God, if I was trying to write like a science fiction novel or a murder mystery or something, then you have real trouble being pigeonholed, no matter how good you are. Like the position that I'm in, it's the pigeonholing is a pretty minor problem. I think you're right about comedy and literature though. We, we interviewed Jesse Armstrong a while ago, who's the guy who writes Peep Show. What a we genius. Were, yeah, genius. I, I find it so toe curling though, I kind of have to turn it off. It's so uncomfortable, <laughs> but he was great. And, and he said the same thing. But along similar lines that you know we were discussing whether comedy blinds deeper interest um, but actually also you talking Ned about uh, having a bit of a departure in your latest book Evie you've had a similar experience haven't you with Everything is Teeth which is a graphic novel a collaboration um, you know bringing visuals in and uh, we were wondering how you found that like melding of two voices together into a single new voice <laughs> nice <laughs> um, well, everything is teeth took about seven years to to write because it was being written alongside other projects um, and and obviously um, it's my first graphic novel. I didn't do the drawings. Joe Sumner, who's a model maker and illustrator um, and good friend of mine, did the illustrations and it was our first collaboration, so we didn't know how to do it um, and so. It was really, it was something that came, that sort of grew up with me, I think. Um, it wasn't like I went, I will do novels, I will do short stories, and now I do novels, and now I do the graphic novel, and next I will fly. I don't know, it sort of, um, it, it worked, it, it really, really felt like it grew up with me, and, and I learned how to cut all the words out of it, because um, that's the important thing with, with graphic novels is is to let the um, illustrations speak and if you're not the illustrator as well as the writer you can kind of get a little bit like hmm. <laughs> <You know? laughs> this started as you know 20,000 words and now it's about 400 um, <laughs> and you can start to feel a little bit like um, underwhelming but I do I, I loved it for that that it just makes you think about art differently and think about um, how stories can be told um, and and really look for the best way to tell a story rather than your ego and rather than all of that shit that um, it's hard to get away from. I don't know if that answers your question. Does, does, question. it does. <laughs> Let's talk about voice, which is a very nebulous term um, and we use it all the time in the publishing industry sort of indiscriminately, but can you talk a bit about how voices come to you and maybe a way to ask that is does a character arrive first or does a voice uh, does it pop into your head do you hear voices 
Do you hear voices? <laughs> Maybe. That's a whole other thing. We can get Joanna Cannon back to uh, do some psychiatry. So, um, well, for me, it's been different for everything that I've done. Um, it will be uh, an image sometimes of you know a place I want to think about. It will be a sentence that just leads me in, or or occasionally it's um, it's a voice, and and that's the easiest one for me. I, f I find once you've got the voice, you can build everything around it. Whereas my last novel, um, what's it called? <laughs> All the birds singing. <laughs> um, it was um, it took me a long time to get the voice and I had the place and all that stuff and the animals and the plot and the stuff but um, the voice of Jake didn't come until I don't think it was really on the page until probably the last six months what what made it develop was it just everything ages, else just ages and stress um, <laughs> I think I think her voice was such a tricky one for me because my first book was um, from the point of view of two men um, in different um, time zones. So it kind of, um, there was a nice, you could hide behind it very easily. You know, the whole, th the thing that every that I got sick of people asking was like, what's it like being a woman writing about men? Um, as if they're this kind of thing, the beautiful orb that you, you can never reach. Um, but, um, which many of you are. Um, <laughs> but my second book <laughs> was um, first person and a woman. So it felt very much like you already, you know, I'd had a taste of what it was like to be published and how many people were just like, this is your family. This is what happened, isn't it? And um, even though you're like, it's fiction, there's a whole, th there's a whole page that tells you that at the beginning. Um, <laughs> there's a whole disclaimer. Um, I think when you're writing first person, and you're writing in your sex, it's quite um, difficult to uh, say that you haven't had some of those direct experiences. Um, it's very difficult to say that to your mother-in-law, for instance. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, and Ned, what about you? sort of same territory, voices, how do they come to you? Yeah, so, uh, well, in, uh, the book I just read from, um, in the second part of four, there's a series of letters from this uh, character who is an incestuous lesbian from rural Texas in the 1930s, which I didn't feel super qualified to write, especially given that I do see all women as beautiful orbs. <laughs> um, we are. Yeah. <laughs> and I just tried to do my best. So I read some Flannery O'Connor and um, Often with me, it comes down to like little tricks. So this character, when she's writing her letters, she will never say like something, something, something said X. She only says X said something, 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 which feels minor, but it's a way of like breaking your normal rhythms of writing and trying to get into someone's voice. And in the same way, there's a character in the book who is sort of based on Didion if her life had gone a different way. And obviously, and late in the book, there's some first person prose by her. And obviously, I'm not trying to write prose like Didion's, but I am trying to write something that feels a bit Didion y. So, w one thing you notice about reading Didion is that she never uses contractions. And in the same way, if you write a character and don't use contractions, it breaks your normal rhythm 
and it helps you move a little bit into this person's voice. But the thing is, voice is partly about uh, the way a person thinks, and it's partly about the kind of things that they think about. And it's easy, in some respects, to adopt a voice in the sense that you're writing about the way they talk, the way they think. But to adopt a voice in the sense of what they think, think about how their brain works, almost impossible. They, they think the same way as you, almost always, because you're writing it. So it's, it's for me, it's often about shrouding that. And with my first three books, people said, either there are virtually no female characters or the female characters feel flimsy or whatever. So for this one, I've like <laughs> gone all in. I've like really <laughs> gunned it. I've got this Didion and this incestuous lesbian. And people are gonna say, why did he try and do that? You were so like visibly unqualified to do characters <laughs> like that. And I'm just gonna say, you asked for it with, <laughs> with the first three books and I tried. So I'll see how it goes. Excellent, good luck with that one. Um, <laughs> no, I'm, it sounds really interesting. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I didn't know how to come back from that one. I'm just looking at your enormous beard and thinking, yeah, you really are visibly like not a lady. <laughs> um, and I also, Ned, this one's for you. Um, have you ever felt overwhelmed by the voice of one of your characters, you know, the other way, rather than it finding you f like the separation on your side of it more? I don't know, the idea of you ever created a monster that's taken you in a different direction? I mean, certainly when I meet friends in the evening now, I find myself talking the austere bon mot and kind of <laughs> mid-century cultural evocations of a Joan Didion-esque <laughs> fictional character, but... After a couple of drinks, I find I can wrestle out of that <laughs> and come back to my own real, much less articulate and elegant personality. <laughs> so I have struggled with it, of course, this kind of Didion-esque demon possessing me, but in the long run, I feel I will return to full health. <laughs> it's interesting what you've said about um, voice and, and the inside of your mind and I think voice is actually very wrapped up with style and you two have very very different styles um, Evie you're very pared back um, it's kind of brutal and beautiful and Ned I would, I would say maybe it's sort of a gleeful maximalism maybe <laughs> um, which are almost opposites of each other in some way do you think how deliberate is your style or do you think that's just the way your mind works for me, um, I'm, I'm learning every time I'm writing. So um, I look back at my first book, not that I've ever read it as a novel, but um, I've only ever worked on it. Um, I kind of, if I have to do a reading from it, I find it so flowery and over the top and like bleh. And I'm finding that with my second novel now. I just, I just feel like the more you write, the more you become the writer that you, I guess, I don't know, R, that doesn't make any sense. That you, I don't know, you kind of, for me it's, it is about taking out as many words as possible and saying things as, um, with as few words as possible. Um, on the page, spoken, I'm a mess. But, um, <laughs> but I think that's why, I think I, f I feel incredibly inarticulate um, as a human and so I want to pin something down and that's why I write. I, I want to say something 
and everything I've written so far, I start it going, right, this is the guy, I'm going to do the thing, I'm going to say the thing, and you all look out. And then, <laughs> and then I finish, and it's like, that's not what I meant. And, and then that's why I write another one. Sounds Ned, how about you? <laughs> Snap. <laughs> uh, I have found that, so a lot of people um, bring up George Orwell's famous rules for writing, and one of them, from what I remember, is uh, you know, don't write a 10-word sentence when you can write a five-word sentence. And one of them is don't use a Latinate word when you can use an Anglo-Saxon word. But unfortunately, those are two contradictory rules. <laughs> Sometimes you can use way fewer words if you use some quite obscure, maybe like 18th century origin semi-scientific Latinate words, which would take two dozen Anglo-Saxon words to um, express the same thing. And what I like in my sentences is to densify them with a maximum possible meaning, which means by the end of the sentence, the sentence is teetering with regard to how many kind of shades and nuances and illusions and uh, jokes, if possible, and so forth, that you can fit in one sentence in the minimum number of words, which, yeah, is very much the opposite to Evie. And so a lot of my reviews say that is showing off, which may well be the case. But then when I read a lot of the novelists that I love the most, like Nabokov or Pynchon, you could well say that they're showing off in the sense that they are doing a kind of firework display and, you know, they want you to ooh and ah. And <laughs> I would love my roadies to at least ooh. <laughs> and given a chance, ah. Well, one of the things I, I really enjoy about your writing is that what you just described, that density of ideas in a single sentence. And one of the things that you do really excellently, which I think is quite unusual, is jumping around between time zones, you know, time frames rather, um, in your references, in your descriptions, and kind of bringing everything together in, in quite an unusual nucleus. And um, I was reading up on you before we had you here, <laughs> and um, saw that various reviewers had kind of said you'd coined the voice of your generation, and I thought, crikey, what a massive burden <laughs> to have levied at you by, um, by people who are reading your work, and I wondered what you thought about it. I haven't read those, because to be <laughs> honest, I, for my first two books, I read the reviews obsessively, and then the third book, I had a kind of sense that there was like a storm coming. And then I really avoided the reviews for the third book, which was a good thing because they were kind of, I don't want to say mean, but they were like pretty negative on the whole. And I don't remember, it's a bit of a Lena Dunham thing, isn't it, being ca called the voice? I mean, also my first two books were set in the 1940s. You can't really be the voice of your generation <laughs> <laughs> if you're writing about the 1940s. And also, I, I've, again, I haven't, I'm not familiar with these reviews because I feel like even the positive reviews I get are often of the form, I really enjoy this book. Whoever wrote it is a fundamentally alien human being. 
and I can't remember, I can't imagine how he thinks or what he wants or what he's trying to achieve. So if some blogger has said that, then I appreciate it. But I would say even the majority of my fans, if I have any fans, would say that at best I can be a sort of perpendicular, like, wandering counter voice rather than the voice of my generation. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Evie, what, what would be the best thing that somebody could say about your writing? Sorry to put you on the spot. Uh, what, would, what would be the best compliment that they could give it? Uh, a, a bit like Ned, I, I do avoid reviews, but I don't know. I, d I, I really, um, there is some weird thing with reviews that you kind of, after the first book, which, you know, I was just terrified and assumed that it would be like a character assassination um, the whole way through, um, you kind of just start going blah, 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 and then you just skip to the, the penultimate paragraph where they go, this is all well and good, but... Um, and so just anything that is like... I like the whole lot of it. <laughs> that will do me. <laughs> I, I just... I hate it when people, are, people kind of go, I really enjoyed this book. It is what it is, though. I just... That's my worst. I think that... I, I can't say what my favourite thing is. And my worst thing is when people say, yeah, it is what it is, because that is bollocks all. That just <laughs> doesn't mean anything. And it really, <laughs> really annoys me. What does that even mean? I know. Well, it means it is what it is, which is which should be a positive thing, surely, unless it's something that you hate. Um, but if you're given like a kind of generally positive review, and then you go, at the end of the day, it is what it is, I think you should be able to go, well, I'm going to take that as a positive, but you can't. Well, uh, this has been what it has been. Thank you very much. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Um, so thank you to all the wonderful authors, the Faber New Poets, Joanna Cannon, Evie Wilde, Ned Bowman, and Faber Social for hosting us tonight. Yeah, thanks for having us, guys. And that was the Literary Friction Faber Social. We have a lot of people to thank for that one. Dan Paps, for one, um, and everyone else at Faber Social for having us. The Social for hosting the event. They were wonderful and gave us lots of free drinks on the night. Um, Paul, the sound guy, who got this great recording and who was an enter very entertained by the whole program. He loved it. Uh, well, we've, we're maybe reading too much into <laughs> his reaction. He was laughing very loud. He seemed into it jokes. from where I was standing. Um, Eddie Knight and Julia from NTS's Third Circle for DJing, um, and of course, all the authors who came and gave wonderful readings and interviews. And we should also thank our brilliant audience who were great fun and came along very gamely. Um, Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or on ntslive.co.uk. You can also check us out on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Um, and please do leave comments where you can and give us a five star rating. Um, and keep your eyes peeled for news on our upcoming new website, which should be born relatively soon. Yes. And we will be back next month with Harry Parker, author of Anatomy of a Soldier, which is a novel about war narrated by the objects surrounding the people involved. 
Um, it has a lot of praise already attached to it, um, including Hilary Mantel, who has called it a novel of concentrated ferocity and chilling accomplishments. I love when even little puffs by novelists are well-written. Yeah, good. It's pretty good by <laughs> Hilary Mantel. Um, so I'm Carrie Plitt with Octavia Bright, and this is Literary Friction on NTS.